that we're sinners. This church, you don't need any outsiders, I think, to come and preach the word. So I consider it a privilege to fill in, in this hour at least, this morning. And always a privilege to be here, to meet friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who share a common faith. Our hearts have been warmed already through the ministry of music and word and intercessory prayer and worship through it. My subject is the triumph of Christ's cross. It's based on Colossians 2, 13 to 15. I'm going to break right into that text. I think I'll do no damage to its context and just read from it. I've been preaching for the last quarter of a century from the New King James Version, though I cherish and read often, daily, the ESV. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, that last phrase of verse 12, God, who raised him from the dead, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, and you, I think it means he raised you from the dead too, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, God, has made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances, the King James says, that was against us which means down on us, literally, that little Greek preposition, which was contrary to us, hostile to us. The violated code of God, once we've violated it, it's against us, it's contrary to us. He blotted that out, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. Father, we pray you'll guide us in our thoughts around and through this glorious text. And I always invite, as I must, Father, the presence, quickening of the cognitive powers by the precious Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit, who was the first to speak this word through the heart and soul and mind and pen of the Apostle Paul. And we ask that that same eternal spirit who first spoke it will speak it, afresh and anew, through the flawed messenger, but the flawless message of the text. Help us, as Peter said, to preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit whom you've sent from heaven. And let us somehow be an unchoked, channel, an uncluttered mouthpiece through which you can touch the hearts and souls of your people as we reflect on our Lord's cross work as we come to this table this morning. And any who may not yet know our our Savior, may the Spirit of the living God do what no human messenger can do. So I ask you for your grace and your strength, a measure of mental clarity the physical stamina we need even behind the pulpit, and the special sense of passion and urgency that comes from your Spirit's work in and through us to others. Father, I trust you for these blessings, and I ask you for them in the name and through the mighty blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The triumph of Christ's cross 
In his book, Why I'm a Christian, John Stott introduces the subject of the cross of Christ in this way. He says, anybody who investigates Christianity for the first time will be struck by the extraordinary stress his followers put on his death. In the case of all of the great spiritual leaders throughout time, their death is lamented as terminating their career. It's of no importance itself. What matters is their life, their teaching, the inspiration of their example. With Jesus, however, Stott says, it's the other way around. His teaching and example were indeed incomparable. But from the beginning, his followers laid their emphasis on his death. And the reason for this emphasis by the apostles was that they had seen it in the mind of Christ himself. Jesus' death was central to his own self-understanding and to the completion of his mission on planet Earth. It's no surprise, therefore, that Paul makes, and so does Peter, and so does John, but we won't go there, but it's no surprise, therefore, that Paul makes the cross of Jesus Christ the very center of his theology of the atonement. Paul says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2. And on this ground, I concur with Stott's assessment of the value of the cross. May I read this to you? I love John Stott, if you haven't noticed. We're good friends, but he doesn't know it. (laughs) I like to read what he's written. He's with Christ now. Stott says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. He says, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to pain? Stott says, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded. If I'd have been writing this, I would have said his corpulent torso thrusting itself at us, if that makes any sense to anybody stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote, remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But, he says, each time after a while I've had to turn away, and in my imagination I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back, lacerated, limbs, wrenched, out of joint, brow, bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That, he says, that is the God for me. I believe in that God. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. And he says, our sufferings become more manageable, I think, more tolerable, more bearable, more meaningful in the light of Christ's. And he's honest enough to say, Stott is, he says, there is still a question mark 
against human suffering. And I think he says it because so much of it is so utterly inexplicable and unexplainable and unfathomable. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, he says, we boldly stamp another mark, and that is the cross, which symbolizes Christ's suffering, the suffering of the God-man for us. And I like to say that his eyes are not closed. And he is not remote. And he is not detached from our agonies because he suffered the agonies occasioned by our sin in his own body and being on the cross. Colossians 2, 13-15 is, is a classic statement of the triumph of the cross. From the pen of the Apostle Paul, and in these verses, there are many ways of looking at this text. You have great preachments and teachments in this church. You don't need me to say it, but... This is one way of looking at this text. In these verses, Paul identifies for us three victorious achievements. That's what I'm going to call them. Three victorious achievements of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. And together, they define, I think, the infinite efficacy or power, redemptive power of Christ's cross work. And they establish his worthiness to receive what he has received already this morning. To receive our grateful worship And beyond the walls of this ministry, our joyful witness. So what are these victorious achievements? There are three of them. I'm going to mention only two of them and focus on mainly one of them. The first of these achievements is the bondage of death is ended, and that's verse 13. You who being dead, he has quickened. He has made you alive. The bondage of death is ended. The second is the guilt of sin is pardoned. Right there at the end of verse 13, having forgiven you all trespasses, all of them, past, present, and future, so efficacious is the crossword. Having forgiven you all trespasses, stated in verse 13 and explained, the ground of which is explained in verse 14. And finally, the tyranny of Satan is broken. He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them in it, which I take to be a reference to his cross work. I I won't get to that one. I want to look at the first two and the first one minimally and try to finish out quickly on the second. First, the bondage of death is ended, and you being dead, he is made alive. He's quickened us. He's made us alive, all of us who have taken refuge in Christ and his cross work. How is it that we are DOA, dead on arrival? Physiologically, we're alive with a pulse. Intellectually, we're alive with the mind as we grow into it. Emotionally, we are alive with our feelings. Volitionally, we're alive with our will. But spiritually, we're detached from God. We're born that way, DOA. We all know the history. We all know the history. You know it very well. At the instant of disobedience in Eden, Adam and Eve were spiritually short-circuited. At the instant of disobedience, they were spiritually short-circuited They were instantaneously dead to God. It was as though the plug had been pulled out of the socket. The light went out. They descended into the darkness, and they brought every one of us with them. We were in their loins. Their original endowments by creation, which entitled them to open an intimate communication with the Creator daily in the cool or in the wind of the day, the text of Scripture says in Genesis. 
All those original endowments by creation were instantly and irrevocably lost due to sin. All the divine power and and spiritual life of their omnipotent creator was cut off from his special image-bearing creation, Adam and Eve, and their descendants. That is spiritual death, and all of humankind has been infected with it and in bondage to it ever since. We're born that way. This is a mountainous disaster, which has caused a catastrophic meltdown in human nature and thus in human society. Sin has ravaged our entire human nature. Paul says there's none righteous. We have a problem with our heart. There's none who understands. We have a problem with our mind. There's none who seeks after God. We have a a problem with our will. He means that the moral, intellectual, and volitional centers of our being has collapsed. Sin has ravaged our entire human nature, severing us from our Creator, leaving us empty and alone, adrift, if you will, in the universe, aimless and alienated from our Maker and creating within us what Augustine famously stated, that God-shaped vacuum within us, which nothing but God himself can fill. With all the emptiness and purposelessness and fearfulness and meaninglessness which that always brings. This is how Jesus Christ found the Colossians when he sent Paul to them. And this is why he sent Paul to them with the life-giving, liberating message of the gospel at the heart of which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is how he finds all of us. It's how he found me as a 16-year-old boy. Heart, mind, and soul, heart, mind, and will tainted Far from God, very much unlike him. That was Doug in those days, to be sure. Not the least bit user-friendly toward him. Immersed in darkness, profane, yes, and defiant, and all alone. And I was distant and remote and different and defiled. And those are the richest candidates for salvation and the ones that Christ pursues. I love what John Newton said. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And this is how Christ finds all of us. Dead in our trespasses. It's a loaded term. Let me park there just for a moment. Dead in our trespasses. It's a loaded term. It suggests that we're a race of rebels, really. Paraptoma, I think, is the Greek word. It carries these connotations. Fence climbing, line crossing, boundary defying. Rebels. That's how he found us. Dead in our trespasses, and not only dead in our trespasses, but also in the uncircumcision of our flesh, which is another loaded, another loaded term or phrase, and it's a very indelicate metaphor. And I think, in effect, theologically, in effect, it means that we are infected with moral filth and loaded with spiritual impurities. The spiritual microbes of evil are alive and well in our anatomy, and we are powerless to do anything about it ourselves. But God in his infinite power and compassion can transform us. And that's what Paul is celebrating here. In spite of all of this, this catastrophic meltdown, moral meltdown, spiritual meltdown, in spite of this catastrophic meltdown that we call spiritual death, we're dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, Paul says he has quickened us, he has made us alive. 
And he makes the point that the same power of God which, which raised Jesus bodily, stated in the last phrase of verse 12, the same power of God which raised Jesus bodily from the dead has raised us spiritually from the dead. We have been made alive together with, literally, together with him, that is, with Jesus. The same God who raised Christ from the grave regenerates us. In regeneration, we experience what the theologians call the impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. And I think it pictures the life of the divine Holy Spirit impregnating our dead human spirit so that we are quickened or made of life. And all of this grammatically in the grammar of the flow of verses 13, 14, and 15, and theologically as well, but all of this grammatically is anchored to the glorious triumph of Christ's cross work, which is articulated most clearly in verse 14. The death and alienation have gone. The life and reconciliation have come. The bondage of death has ended, thanks to the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a second victorious achievement. I want to spend just a few moments on that. And the way I'm stating it is this, the guilt of sin is pardoned. And that's what I think is going on in the last phrase of verse 13, where it's baldly stated, in verse 14, where it's explained and expanded. The guilt of sin is pardoned, having forgiven you all trespasses. It's wonderful to put those two phrases together at the beginning and end of that verse. We were dead in our trespasses, verse 13a. We have been forgiven all trespasses, verse 13b. In other words, our liberation from death and our experience of eternal life are both contingent on this reality, having forgiven you all trespasses. I hope you have experienced a healthy taste of that forgiveness. Paul's word forgiven it's a wonderful word. It really means that we've been wrapped in grace. Charisomenos. That's the word. Wrapped in grace. In other words, forgiveness is a grace-saturated word because at its heart, even in, 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 the, in the word itself, is the word charis or grace. Charisomenos. Wrapped in grace. By the way, I cherish this concept of forgiveness because I so desperately need it, and it seems to me that I need it just about every day of my life. We're still broken people with multiple contradictions in our spiritual and moral anatomies. I need it just about every day. I, I need it every day. None of us is rich enough to buy back our past, but all of us can be forgiven for it. On account of the cross work of Christ, we are wrapped in his forgiving grace. And because this is such a grace-saturated term, it means that the forgiven people of God, those who have taken refuge by faith in Jesus Christ alone and have transferred their faith from everything else that might be a, a presumed object of it, transferred that faith from everything else to Jesus Christ alone, the forgiven people are, of God are the recipients of a gift that, that we do not deserve. It's grace, the bestowal of a gift that we do not deserve. Christ's work on the cross has liberated, if I can put it this way, and I think it's right to say this, 
Christ's work on the cross has liberated God to act in grace toward us instead of acting in wrath toward us. He bore the wrath, which I so richly deserve. We receive the grace, which we so richly do not deserve. And the shape that grace takes is divine favor, especially in the form of divine forgiveness. Until Christ's death on the cross... Is it right to say this? Until Christ's death on the cross, God the Father was morally and judicially bound by his own holy and just nature to penalize us personally for our sins. He was bound by that holy and just nature to do so. But now, on the ground of Christ's sin-bearing, wrath-pacifying, guilt-expiating death in our behalf on the cross, God the Father is free liberated, no longer bound, free to act in grace toward us, to favor us, rather than to judge us. This means we can breathe again, that there's hope for every single one of us who is willing to take refuge in that crucified, risen, ascended, interceding, and ultimately returning Christ. How does this work, this forgiveness? How is this possible? Or maybe we could frame it this way. What happened on the cross to make this possible? And I want to finish with these two points, sub-points. What happened on the cross to make this possible? And I think in verse 14, if we look at it carefully, we'll see, number one, that our criminal record has been erased. And number two, that our judicial guilt has been expiated. He blotted out our certificate of debt. The handwriting of ordinances, which was against us and contrary to us. And secondly, he took it out. He blotted it out and he took it out. He removed it. Nailing it to his cross. So let me just talk about those two concepts before we come to the table here in a few moments. Number one, our criminal record is erased. We could say expunged. I do love the King James translation of this text. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Blotted it out. Taking it out of the way. The handwriting. It's, it's a glorious word. He, he blotted out the handwriting. The certificate of debt. The word is karagraphon. Kara is hand and graphon is to write. Graphics, handwriting. Paul's word for handwriting is defined as a handwritten document, specifically a certificate of indebtedness or a record of debts, which I think it is in the ESV, something like that. It is a signed confession of indebtedness, a signed. You could say it's autographed, if you will, by us. To sign confession of indebtedness, which stood as a perpetual witness against us. This was a term, by the way, that was used in multiple ways in the first century when Paul was writing these words. Commercially, the handwriting was an IOU. You've probably heard this before. The handwriting was an IOU, a written statement of indebtedness signed in one's own handwriting by the debtor. It was used commercially in business contexts. It was used criminally or legally. If I may put it that way, it was used of a criminal charge list, a listing 
of one's criminal offenses with their corresponding penalties spelled out. Always that criminal charge list stood between the prisoner and his freedom until that debt was paid. So Paul takes this relatively common term and invests it with rich salvific or theological significance. Theologically, each one of us possesses what the New American Standard Bible translates, a spiritual certificate of debt. We owe God a humanly unpayable debt because we have violated his moral law. And there is no platinum, gold, or silver capable of paying that debt for us. We have no merit with which to earn this payment. We have no money with which to purchase it. No platinum, gold, or silver is capable of paying that debt because we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty, futile way of living our lives, the way we inherited from, by tradition from our parents. So how are we redeemed? But with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a, of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So here's the point, if I can make it. As members of Adam's fallen race, we have transgressed our Father's will. We have violated his moral law. It's no surprise then that this law is now said to be against us, as I said earlier, down on us. And contrary to us, openly, vigorously, and persistently, I think the lexicon would say, openly, vigorously, and persistently hostile to us, I mean, that is the terrifying shape God's divine law takes when it is violated. Law is a hard thing. Under law, we either do or die. We perform or perish. So here we are. We are transgressors of the divine law. There is a written record in our own handwriting, so to speak, a signed document there's a written record standing against us, and this is a written record which we have autographed with our own signature, our own hand writing. What can we do about this? And the answer is there's nothing we can do about it, but the, the real answer is there's something that God has already done about it in his Son, Jesus Christ. What did he do? He canceled it. He blotted it out. He wiped it clean. He disposed of the paper trail, if you will. It's all gone. Every record of our guilt and penalty which is due us has been removed from the judicial eyes of God. Not a trace remains. That is the meaning of the word canceled, wiped out, blotted out. That is the meaning of the term exalepho. It means to disappear by wiping away or erasing, to remove so as to leave no trace, actually it means to obliterate in the lexicon. To obliterate. William Barclay, whose theology is a bit suspect, but whose grasp of Greek, both language, education, and culture, is pretty astute, William Barclay says, to understand that word, exalepho, blotted out, wiped out, canceled, to understand that word is to understand the amazing mercy of God. The substance on which ancient documents were written, he says, was either papyrus, a kind of paper made of, made of the pith of the bulrush, or vellum, a substance made of the skin 
of animals. Both, he says, were fairly expensive and certainly could not be wasted. Ancient ink, Barclay said, had no acid in it. It lay up on the surface of the paper and did not, as modern ink generally does, bite into the paper. Sometimes, he says, scribes, to save paper, used papyri, papyrus rather, or vellum that had already been written upon. So when he did that, he took a moistened sponge and he wiped the writing out off of the vellum or the papyrus. Because it was only on the surface of the paper, the ink could be wiped out as if it had never been. So God in his amazing mercy banished the record of our sin so completely that it was as if it had never been. Not a trace remains. And it was Christ, we can say this now, how he did this, it was Christ who sponged away the record of our sins on his cross and the liquid solution he used was his own shed blood. In other words, Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He paid sin's debt in full. And in doing that, he wiped our certificate of debt perfectly clean. Not a trace remains. That is the joy of taking refuge in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is the blessing he bestows upon every one of us who has done so. This is the triumphant efficacy of the cross. All that was due us fell on Christ and our criminal record now in Christ, our criminal record is erased. And finally, our judicial guilt is expiated. That's the second great effect of Christ's cross work. Our judicial guilt is expiated. Christ has taken it out of the way, literally. And the word for way in the Greek New Testament is masu, which means in the middle. He's taken it out of the middle, which means that this document, documenting our sins, always stood between us and our God, and it's been taken out of the way. The barrier is down. The gate is open. The way of access into the presence of the Lord is there for any of us who will claim it by faith. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And I think this is just a second way of portraying how our certificate of debt has been disposed of, not only erased but expiated. Sort of the double effect that Paul wants to make. Joachim Jeremiah has a commentary on this text. And Jeremiah thinks that the allusion, to the, the, the allusion is to what he calls the titulus, the tablet fixed over a crucified person's head on which his crimes were written. And he believes that on Jesus' titulus it was our sins, not his, which were inscribed. And I think he's probably right. The picture is stunning. The picture is stunning. Through his mighty sacrifice, Jesus lifted up from our shoulders, our sinful shoulders, our guilty shoulders, mine, so to speak. He lifted up from our shoulders the crushing burden and oppressive, condemning guilt of our sin, and he bore it on his own guiltless and sinless shoulders all the way up to Calvary where it was nailed to the cross. God made him to be sin. He who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness, righteousness of God 
in him. No longer can this statement of our indebtedness to God hold any sway over us, be any threat to us. It no longer stands between us and our God. It has been taken out of the middle, out of the way, and nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful word, and I just want to close with this, this definition. It's a wonderful word. The word taken out is iro in Greek. It's common in the New Testament. It's a technical sacrificial term. And Bauer, Doniker, Art, and Gingrich, BDAG as we call them, define it as, um, it describes how guilt is expiated, removed, and ultimately destroyed. John concurs with the Apostle Paul's sentiment here. John says, and you know that he was manifested to take away, same word, iro, expiate, remove, to take away sins, and in him there was no sin. In him, in him there is no sin. 1 John 3 and verse 5. He said it in John 1 and verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God, the one expiating, it's a participle, participial phrase there, the one expiating who takes away the sin of the world. And he did that on his, on his cross. All of this was made possible on the cross of Christ where Jesus bore our sins, endured our penalty, and died our death. His sacrifice propitiated God's wrath, quieted it, exhausted it. All of God, there's no wrath left for anybody who's in Christ. No no wrath left for us. It was exhausted in Christ's work on the cross. It propitiated, quieted, pacified God's wrath. His sacrifice demonstrated God's justice so that God could be both just and the justifier of sinners who believe in Jesus. And it manifested God's love, Romans 5 and verse 8. And in so doing, in offering that sacrifice of himself in our behalf, in so doing, he expunged, he erased our criminal record, and he expiated our judicial guilt. This is the sole ground of our Christian boasting, as we heard earlier. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 6, 14. And we, we, we boast in that cross because of its victorious achievements in behalf of a fallen and depraved humanity, in behalf of each one of us. The bondage of death is ended. The guilt of sin is pardoned. The tyranny of Satan is broken. Octavius Winslow asked the question, who delivered up Jesus to die? And he says, not Judas for money, and not Pilate for fear, and not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son all the way up to the agony of the cross so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray that we will be, is it right to pray this? I think it is. Let's pray that we will be a cross-centered people, gratefully celebrating Christ's cross. We commemorate it. We celebrate it. We're called to imitate it.
and taking up our cross daily right around this table, gratefully celebrating Christ's cross and humbly embracing ours, loving God with all our human powers, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and loving our lost world and our neighbors, if you will, in cross-shaped, sacrificial, missionally driven ways. Thank you, Father, for what our Lord accomplished on the cross, the infinite efficacy of that work. Thanks that for all of us who have taken refuge in that Christ, the bondage of death is ended and the guilt of sin is pardoned and even the tyranny of Satan is broken. Now bless your people with a heart to live cross-shaped, sacrificial, missional lives. And speak to us profoundly about that as we gather around this table. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.